0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode seven of Conversations with the Code 9 Foundation. In this episode, we are incredibly fortunate to be joined by former Victorian Premier and Liberal leader, Jeff Kennett. Jeff, thank you so much for joining us for this episode. Thank you. Now, look, I have to admit that in the early 90s when I was still at university, we used to laugh at a particular girlfriend of mine who, while most of us were actually outgrowing the phase of hanging posters on our wall, she still proudly displayed one particular poster above her desk. Now, it was actually a poster of you, Jeff, in a Superman outfit. Now, goodness knows where she got this actual poster from, but she did cop a little bit of flack for it whenever people came into her particular room at the university. But there you were posing with your hands on your hips, with your cape blowing out in the wind, and it was Jeff Kennett in his Superman outfit. And she was destined for a career in law and politics, and even back then you were her idol. And I have to admit, I have certainly joined the fan club due to your passion for supporting mental health. And when I've told people that I was recording a podcast with you, everyone knows who you are. From my fellow Geelong Cats fans who know you from Hawthorne, my dad said, tell him my mates with Jeff Craig, because I believe he worked with you. Passionate, loud, memorable, the best PM Australia never had. They've all been words that have been used to describe you. But overwhelmingly, I think the consensus is that you've probably been even more influential outside of Parliament because of the work you've done in promoting health, uh, mental health. And maybe you are more known for your achievements, particularly in establishing the not-for-profit organisation Beyond Blue. So I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit more Around how what you've described as the role of a lifetime actually came about. Firstly, uh, tell your friend at university she was a very astute young lady. <laughs> I uh, will indeed. Your father's highly intelligent, <laughs> and I don't know
1: where you've gone off the rails, Aaron. But, uh, who knows? Uh, Let us go back. In about nineteen ninety-seven, maybe ninety-eight. My daughter came to me because two of her young male friends down in the Western District had died in car accidents. And she was terribly upset, understandably, and she said to me as Premier then, when I had a bit of influence, interest, what can we do to stop these young men dying on the road? And I thought we were talking about car accidents. But when I found out more about the two incidents, both of the young men were depressed, both of them turned to alcohol and both of them used their cars to take their lives. So very quickly it changed from an issue of a motor accident to uh, an issue of mental health. And we thought we try and reduce suicides, but when I spoke to a lot of experts we found out that most suicides were either caused by emotional or clinical depression. So what causes depression? And that led to another round of discussions with experts. It led me to, at the last COAG meeting I attended in Canberra in 99 to try and establish a national body. That didn't occur. But a lot of the premiers then agreed with me that we should have a national body. And although we lost the election that year in 99, uh, I then got support to establish what became or has become known as Beyond Blue in the year 2000. And over the intervening period of 20 years, it's done some extraordinarily valuable work. It is recognised by all its constituent partners. So every state, territory, the federal government is a partner with Beyond Blue. It is bipartisan, which means right from the beginning, I made sure that the board was made up of people of my political persuasion. The Labor Party, the National Party, and even today, on my uh, retirement two years ago, I worked for three years to get Julia Gillard to succeed me as uh, the chairman of Beyond Blue, and that continuation of a bipartisan organisation dealing with a widespread issue and challenge has proved to be very, very successful.
0: Yeah, incredible success. And I remember reading somewhere once that you said part of the reason behind Beyond Blue's success is because you've been in people's faces. You had to get up there and talk about it, and really just get this into the conversation. So, when you were first starting out, how hard was that to get people talking about an issue that people still back then really were just keeping? It was quite taboo back then, wasn't it? I think any of your audience that has suffered. A mental health issue or anxiety or stress would understand
1: that 20 years ago we rarely talked about such issues, but as people started speaking about it, others came out of the woodwork in their hundreds of thousands, and so for the first five or six years of my leadership at Beyond Blue, I spent most of my time travelling the country, talking to groups out in the bush. Uh, in metropolitan regional areas. And that built up this extraordinary groundswell uh, and indicated that the need, the interest, in this sort of priority was very, very high. So within the health portfolio, mental health was given a very, very low priority. And I have always been very appreciative of those professionals and others who worked in the mental health sphere, uh, often under very trying, difficult circumstances, they never got the same recognition that was given to nurses and doctors at times like this when we're fighting a pandemic. And yet without those people, uh, our society would have been a lot poorer.
0: Absolutely. And was there much resistance when you were first starting out? No, not at all. In fact, many people said to me, Oh, you're the first person to be heading up an organization that is to, of, interested in depression because you caused so
1: much <laughs> in the state of Victoria when you were Premier. But the good thing about that was, for better or for worse, I was reasonably well known throughout the country. And when you're trying to be an advocate, particularly for a community organization. You need someone to act as a lightning rod to attract the attention of the media and the public and the politicians. And whether people accepted my period as leadership here in Victoria or did not, made no difference. We broke through. And so, therefore, by spending so much time on the road in the earlier years, we established a base from which now beyond blue and I was speaking to the staff there this morning. I always used to say, and we've had no more than 24 staff members, we would review our existence every four years, and if we feel as though we've achieved our goals, we would complete our work and wind up. As of today, there's about 240 people working at Beyond Blue, and as I said earlier, It is governments who want us to continue our work because we've introduced so many programs, so much education, that now very rarely do you hear if a person is confident enough to come forward and say, look, I'm suffering stress or anxiety or depression, very rarely now will they be ridiculed. And in days gone by, you were almost prevented from seeking help
0: because you're worried about how people would go to treat you. Yeah. I mean, Beyond Blue has become the go-to resource for, for so many of us working in this space, and particularly within the emergency services. We are so frequently guiding people to the resources that Beyond Blue develop, and actually Georgie Harmon, um, the CEO of Beyond Blue, is, is an upcoming guest on one of our podcasts as well. So we absolutely value the support that they give to those of us working in the emergency services. Now... Jeff, you do have, I don't know if you know this, but you do have a bit of a reputation for being a little bit polarising at times, but not that I necessarily believe it. <laughs> that is ridiculous. sure. Um, yeah. Look, it might have something to do with that club that you barric for in the AFL, but who knows? But um, listen, your achievements in putting mental health on the map in Australia are simply undisputed, though. And since establishing Beyond Blue, as you said back in 2000, the organisation has simply gone from strength to strength. But I think even you would probably recognise that we still do have a long way to go in breaking down stigma and ensuring that mental health is is more widely understood, acknowledged and addressed by the broader community. But do you think we're getting better at it, though? I don't think there's any doubt about that. And in your own emergency services sort of concept, uh, as you know, we have had a very good relationship with the CEO of Ambulance Victoria. Tony Walker, who introduced a program delivered by a few years ago, which has had the most wonderful results in terms of reducing uh, suicides
1: and dealing with matters to do with mental health. And we do work throughout Australia with police forces. So we now are in the seat of a huge amount of research and are putting programs into place the whole time. Are we better? Certainly we are. Is the community more understanding and better educated? Certainly they are. Is there still work to be done? Of course there is. And one of the great worries, Erin, that I have, as we better educate the community, there are some, sadly, who use depression or mental health as an excuse for what I would call antisocial behaviour. Uh, So... Senator goes before the courts for shoplifting and says, I'm depressed. I don't accept that sort of escapism or the blaming of mental health on bad social behaviour. So, yes, we have a lot of work to do. Our suicide rate is still ridiculously high, uh, and there are different factors at play the whole time. As you know, within the emergency services, particularly within the police force, both serving and retired officers, there is a very high suicide rate, which is very sad, and that's because
0: people have been part of a very disciplined environment, and then all of a sudden, they don't have the support there, they don't have the comradeship. It's certainly the same in uh, our military forces, both within and on exit. So yes, we have a lot of work to do. Yeah, you touched on the emergency services culture there, and I think we have come a long way in changing some of the culture there and i know a lot of the the emergency responders that are listening to this podcast will will agree with you in that there have been significant changes over the years but unfortunately there still is that prevailing toxicity there in that you know particularly as you mentioned with the police force in that if i speak out about my mental health they'll take my gun and they'll take my job so yep. they'll still hold on to it and bottle it up until the point where sometimes it becomes a crisis for them. Uh, One of our previous uh, podcast episodes was with outgoing Chief Commissioner of Victoria Police, Graham Ashton, and he was just brilliant in saying that there were things he wished he'd done sooner and implemented sooner. Um, And one of the things he wishes for the future of Victoria Police is almost a mandatory six monthly check-in, a well-being check-in for everyone in the police force so that people are actually uh, checking in on their well-being while they're still well. And I thought that was a a great proactive approach. And Tony Walker, again, as you mentioned, CEO of Ambulance Victoria, echoes that kind of proactive approach to well-being. He said, we need to move into that preventative space now instead of being so reactive. He said, in the past, we've been too reactive. Um, I, I don't think Graham Ashton should regret his period as police commissioner. What he has done is put mental health very much in the minds of the leadership of the police force. And I hope the new uh, designate uh, who will take over at the end of this month will continue that. Yes. I think the other important thing is I had a magic wand in terms of the emergency services. I would like to invest, and I've suggested this to the RSL, and there are many who utilise those facilities. The RSL today is a different
1: body than it used to be. And the RSL today, in my opinion, should be a place not only for people from the military services to find companionship, but for all disciplined forces. So that it is a, it's a club where people who have enjoyed a disciplined regimented lifestyle, so whether that's SES, police, whether it's AMBOS, you name it, uh, where on retirement, they can find companionship among others who have experienced the same sort of lifestyle that they have and build these RSL clubs up into something that represents uh, emergency services per se in a way that I think, if properly done, could reduce substantially the pain that follows for a lot of emergency services officers after they retire.
0: It's really interesting that you mention that, Jeff, because it's something that we've discussed with um, with Tony Walker and with Graham Ashton, and it's something that within Code Nine as a committee we've we've discussed frequently is what can we do. To help those that retire, because particularly what we know with the first responders is a lot of them are forced into early retirement. So some of them are in their twenties and thirties and forties. You know, what are they going to do with the rest of their life when so much of their life was, you know, tunnel vision, getting into the emergency services, and then all of a sudden they're stripped of their uniform, they're no longer identified as the cop or the firefighter or the paramedic, what does that mean? It's that loss of identity. And as you said, it's such an important part for their mental health and well-being to still feel connected somehow. And that's what we try to do with the Code 9 Foundation and other support groups try to do that. But it's interesting to see how the RSL could play a role in that potentially.
1: Well, yeah, I think it's... it's yeah, I think. There's so much criticism of the armed services in terms of the services they provide, which is not fair, uh, but unfortunately a lot of the term service men and women do fall through the cracks, as do a lot of emergency services personnel. and it is, I think, a result of their training, uh, and there is nothing like it. I'm an ex-serviceman myself, Uh, I wasn't in the force for long, but... uh,
0: you lose that companionship. You lose those structures, and therefore, I think the opportunity to continue that in a different form on retirement or leaving a force is terribly important. And I think we were talking to Tony Walker in the episode just before yours, and he was talking about how Ambulance Victoria actively looking at a retirement, like a retirement peer support group, through Ambulance Victoria. So they're certainly moving in the right direction, and I think it's certainly something that all emergency services need to embrace because... I don't think
1: you want to create something new. You don't want to create something for every emergency service. You want... Given that our employees in these services exist right throughout the state and right throughout the
0: country, you're better to use and partner with a structure that's already in place. The last thing you want to do is start... In new wheels, we want to use what we've got, but use them better. Well, you're incredibly right, and it's also because Tony pointed out a really interesting fact as well. He said, not everyone who retires from the services does so with a um, a happy kind of leaving farewell. You know, he said not everyone will want to be part of the AV retirement club. Like yeah, they need whatever. to be able to integrate with other people, and and um, because it might not have been a pleasant experience when they leave. Yeah. So no, I agree
1: with that. I agree with
0: that. Yes. The other group I think we need to sort of be more mindful of as well is the family members that are supporting those with mental health injuries and particularly we're thinking here of the wives, the partners, the family members, um, those that are living alongside PTSD. And I recently did uh, quite a few interviews with partners and spouses and um, significant others of our members who are living alongside their loved ones and particularly in the middle of the pandemic as you can imagine, that just sort of magnified all of the little um, issues that, that go on within a family unit when they're dealing with this anyway. And a lot of those family members feel like, you mentioned before, some of the first responders feel like they fall through the cracks. Well, for the family members, they even more so feel unacknowledged, unseen, unsupported. But we know without them... Uh, the whole situation can be even so much worse. So I'm wondering what your thoughts are about how we can better support the supporters.
1: I agree with that. I think the only thing I would say is we've got to be very careful that we don't ignore or overlook the responsibility of the individuals to help themselves. So you really want to have something in place that is the light touch which gives people the opportunity to accept an invitation to join and be part or to exercise or to eat better, Uh, you can't be totally your brother's keeper. It's a partnership. It's a partnership of the services that you provide and the willingness of the individual to participate. And that's a challenging concept, I know, but I think it's very realistic and very necessary.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I'm wondering uh, on a personal reflection, um, you know, you've you've been working in this space for a considerable amount of time now. What have you learnt, you know, from your own personal reflection about your own self-care, like what works for you in terms of looking after yourself? I think uh, it's getting the balance right. I think it's not dwelling on the past, accepting what you have today, addressing understanding that I've got to be responsible for my health. So if that means a bit of exercise, if it means not smoking, if it means drinking in moderation, which I'm pretty weak on, uh, you know, there are
1: things that I can do. But in dealing with other people, Aaron, I think the most important thing you can do is give people time. So when someone comes up to me and says I have an issue or they want to talk to me about something to do with themselves, their mental health, their stress, anxiety... Give them a few minutes. Don't push them off, because if you push them off, you're reinforcing in their mind a feeling of, oh, no one's interested in me, worthlessness. So the biggest lesson I've learned in life is to make sure, firstly, that I can't look after my family, I can't look after the organisations I'm running, uh, unless I'm in as good a... Condition, health as possible, and that's my responsibility. So I've got to work on that. Otherwise,
0: I'm not going to be able to do the job that others expect of me. Yeah, it's really important. I read a, it was a a number of years old, an interview that someone did with you or about you from The Australian. And you were actually talking about how one of the reasons that you inevitably had to step away from the work with Beyond Blue too, was because it was just, it was a lot. You had so many people who would actually find your contact details and find your phone number and ring you and say, you know, my son's Uh, partner or somebody rather is you know thinking about suicide what do I do and it was this constant onslaught to you because you became the face of this for so many people and that's sort of a similar situation not to that extent but for a lot of people through Code 9 Foundation is that they take on that peer support role almost a grief counselling role but we need to be mindful that we're not mental health professionals and we need to put protective boundaries around ourselves And we talk about having those important conversations and normalising the conversations. But from your experience, as you said, you had so many people reach out to you. What did you learn about having those conversations but also having them safely from your perspective?
1: I still have them but not in the same number. Mm. Uh, But I might get five or six phone calls a day. Oh, goodness. Uh, And when people bring you up, you can't say, look, I'm sorry, that's not my area of responsibility. So Mm. it took a lot of time and... Sometimes it took hours, because people would ask me to find a, a psychiatrist in Western Australia or Northern Territory, and you can't let them down. But what I found is, you know, you you do have to be fairly honest in assessing your own position. Uh, and that's why, in the end, after 17 years, I said to myself, righto, I need a break. I've got to get away from this, and it's taken... I've been out of Beyond Blue now for two years, or two and a half, three years. I'm not quite sure what it is. I still get calls every week, but not to the same degree, Uh, and I never turn anyone down, and I always try and help them, obviously. But, you know, there comes a time when you've got to move on, and that's certainly the case in terms of
0: leading an organisation. You can't be there forever. Yeah. But where... I mean, when you look at Beyond Blue, obviously, you know, Julia Gillard has taken over... Um, as Chair, but obviously I'm sure you keep a very watchful eye over what's happening there. Um, where would you like to see the organisation go f- from here? Well, it'll
1: keep doing its work. We've introduced some wonderful programs. Uh, the Federal Government has given them money to help establish a new uh, COVID-19 call centre, so it's held in such esteem that governments know they're getting good value and, and good governance of beyond Blue, which is terribly important. But I leave it up To them, I'm not going to set parameters. Uh, We've got a a way back uh, program that now reaches out throughout Australia for those who have attempted to take their lives. uh, And that's a very valuable service. It's having a huge impact, uh, successful impact, which is good. So, no, look, our our work is, or their work now, is widespread. It's uh, noticed around the world. Its website is... Consistently recognised as the best website in Australia on obviously mental health issues. Uh, so I'm not, I'm out of it, <laughs> and it's not for me to tell them what they should be doing. But I trust those who are there, and uh, I trust the partnerships that they have built.
0: That's fantastic. Look, I'm very mindful of the time, and we we're very grateful for you for you taking some time to speak to us today, Jeff. But being cognizant of the fact that the people who are listening at the moment we have you know the majority of them will be first responders many of them are struggling with mental health injuries at the moment many are ill health retired we will have partners and wives listening as well as maybe one final reflection any any final advice for them who are sitting at home at the moment we're in the middle of the pandemic um, some of them might be really doing it tough right now what's your final reflection or piece of advice for those that are doing it tough on the severity of your issues, obviously seek medical
1: uh, advice and support, but having said that, what I often find, particularly with men, is the need to exercise, and for many men that I have helped, I've encouraged them to walk after breakfast, to walk after lunch, to walk after dinner, to do it with a friend, to do it with a child, Uh, And really get yourself as fit as possible. And secondly, to eat well. So that for so many people in need, it's not a question of drugs. It's a question of just giving your
0: body the chance to rebuild its strength and its functionality. So walking and good eating has helped so many men and women to better health. Fantastic advice. And, look, while I have you here, Jeff, I can't I can't let you go without asking, who's going to win the premiership this year? The
1: person who wins the grand final or the team. Yes. It won't be Geelong.
0: It's not going to be Geelong, is it? We were lousy on the weekend. No,
1: no, no. Well, that's right. It's only one weekend. They may get there. Who knows?
0: That's right. But
1: we'll just have to wait and see.
0: We'll have to wait and see. That's That's a great answer. Jeff Kennett, thank you so much for your time and on behalf of the Code 9 Foundation, thank you for everything you have contributed to uh, normalising the conversation around mental health in Australia. Thank you so much. Great
1: pleasure. Have a good day.